The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. This morning we are returning back to the book of Genesis. And uh, let me invite you and encourage you to open your Bible as we turn there to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, We are going to look at the concluding portion of Genesis 22, especially verse 15 through the end of the chapter. So if you haven't already, grab a Bible and let's open up together to Genesis 22, uh, because following along with the text is, uh, is very, very essential to make sure that, uh, that what we're hearing is truly God's Word, and we're understanding it and growing in it as well. And uh, as you're going to chapter 22, uh, last time we were here, a number of weeks ago, we were walking through what is uh, one of the most uh, dramatic and in- intense stories in the Old Testament, Chapter 22, of course, is the account of Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we were hearing about that and following along. And today, uh, we're not going to uh, look again particularly at that, that narrative events of the drama that unfolds, but rather the, the sequel to those events and what follows those events. And, and this is very much going to be helpful to us as we prepare to come and and join together in the Lord's Supper because this chapter is very, very much for us about the theme of sacrifice, and that's a wonderful theme to reflect on in preparation for the supper. Uh, But as we come here to the end, just start to glance down at verse 15 through the end of the chapter, and you'll especially note that uh, verse 20 through verse 24 is something of a genealogy. Uh, This chapter often overshadows these concluding portions from verse 15 onward because we think of the sacrifice of Isaac and all the drama that goes with it, and, and we focus there on that. And that's, that's good and right, but we don't want to pass by these closing details because uh, there are a few things here for us that will be of wonderful encouragement if we pause and linger on exactly what God's Word has to say to us here. It's good to remember that uh, when, when Paul says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God, including those portions that we so often want to just glance by as we move on to the next portion of the Bible. But this is a a wonderful text here for us this morning, and I'm sure the Lord uh, will give great grace to us today. So let's pray before we hear God's word and ask for his blessing upon it as we attend to God's word this morning. Our Father, together with your people, we, we bow in your presence and we give you thanks that you give us a Bible, a Bible in language that we can read and understand. So Lord, help us as we approach the scriptures today not to take for granted the wonderful grace you've given to us in your word. And so Lord, as we approach it, help us to do so with soft hearts and ready ears and a mind that is able to hear, receive, and believe the things that you would teach us today. And so Lord, come by your spirit to rest upon us with encouragement with conviction, with grace, and with your kindness, we ask, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear God's word in Genesis 22, beginning at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Uz, his brother, Kemeol, the father of Aram, Tesed, Hazel, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makah. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever, so we'll keep our Bibles open here and attend to God's word this morning. Now, we said that uh, much, much comes before this in chapter 22, uh, much in terms of drama and the unfolding events. We don't want to forget why this chapter is so important because it sets in context what God is saying in verse 15 and following. So just by very, very brief summary, there were three things that really were born out of chapter 22. And the first one was the father's willingness to give his son Remember that Abraham gave Isaac in obedience to the Lord who commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac. You see that back in verse 3, that Abraham obeyed the voice of God. And it showed to us the intensity of the father's love for his son. Abraham's love for Isaac, but especially we learned in that the intensity of God the father's love for his son who also willingly gave his son up in sacrifice. But it was a sacrifice that was not stopped like Abraham's sacrifice was. It was a sacrifice that went all the way through. If you think for a moment about the cross of Calvary and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, we oftentimes think about the fact that the sacrifice of Jesus came at great cost for Jesus. And that's true of course because he's giving his own life but do not forsake the fact that the father is also expending his son at great cost to himself so this chapter has pointed us to the love of the father for his son who willingly gives his son in sacrifice there is nothing greater than that love in the scriptures and the father's love in giving his son so we saw that we also saw in verse 13 the very important principle of substitution that rather than acts than isaac going under the knife of sacrifice there is a ram that is caught in the thicket back in verse 13 we saw that the ram is going to be sacrificed in isaac's place which foreshadowed for us the reality that rather than we going under the sacrifice of judgment that someone is going to go in our place under that judgment that we deserve of course culminating in the Lord Jesus who drinks the cup of the father's wrath rather than it being poured out upon us 
the principle of substitution. So there is the love of the father for his son, the principle of substitution, and then also beautifully in verse 5, we saw this great principle of resurrection, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, believing God's promises so much that the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 tells us that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if he were to sacrifice Isaac, that Abraham believed God so much, he believed his promises so strongly that if he was going to kill the covenant son, he believed that God was going to raise the covenant son because God had promised him that generations would come through this boy. And so if he were to die, surely he must be brought back to life. And that's why this chapter is so full of so many important things, but When we find in verse 15, the angel of the Lord speaking to Abraham a second time, after he had kept Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, it comes with a very strong word. And and what we're going to see in uh, this portion of the conclusion of chapter 22 is just two things. And the first is that the Lord is here going to reaffirm. He's going to reaffirm his reaffirmation of his reaffirmation of his promise of his promise. Of what God says to Abraham, he's going to reaffirm his promises. And then we're going to see Abraham embracing those promises. So as we look again in verse 15, we find the Lord reaffirming his promises to Abraham. God promises Abraham in light of his obedience God has commanded Abraham, Abraham has obeyed, and now that he has obeyed, Abraham is blessed by the Lord reaffirming his promise to Abraham. Look again in verse 15 and 16, where the voice comes from heaven, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 17, God speaks to Abraham saying, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, I sincerely hope that as you're looking at that text, that there are aspects of that that appear familiar to you, having been walking through this narrative of the Abrahamic faith since uh, chapter 12. Now, we have been finding that God has made these grand promises to Abraham, and Abraham at varied times and in varied ways has struggled to believe and struggled to obey. And of course, you and I entirely identify with that. We don't always do what God says. We don't always believe everything he promises. And in that way, we are just like Abraham. And the narrative from chapter 12 all the way through 22 here is telling us that this is what it's like to receive God's promises. It's not always easy, but we have to grow in our faith to learn to trust God. But chapter 22 is this culminating word to say that God's words are indeed trustworthy. And as Abraham has believed and as he has obeyed, here is God coming to him again to say, Abraham, let me tell you again just how sure you can be of my word, just how sure you can be of my promise. Now, maybe you still do this, but remember when you were a kid and you could seal a promise with that 
utterly authoritative hand gesture called the pinky promise, right? And a pinky promise elevated a promise to such a degree that you can join in on that promise. And here is God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I promise, and I promise about my promise, and I promise about that reaffirmation about that promise. He is building upon all of these levels of assurance to say, Abraham, here is my covenant that I'm giving to you. And my covenant is so sure that I'm going to tell you again, one more time, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will give you this land. And as you're hearing those things, do you remember those aspects of the Abrahamic covenant? God promises to Abraham land, seed, and blessing. That's what God has been promising to Abraham all the way since chapter 12 and reaffirming every time Abraham struggles and every time Abraham has success and every time Abraham believes and every time Abraham fails to believe. The promise is the same. And doesn't that remind us about the fact that for all that we feel in terms of the changing realities of life and life changing and life struggling, here we have this immovable assurance of God's promise. But look again at the details, these details of land, seed, and blessing. Notice in verse 17 and 18, we're finding the promise of the land. God promises to give Abraham the promised land. And that's what it means at the end of verse 17 when God says, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That means that this land, Abraham, that I've promised to you, you don't currently possess it in terms of uh, actual inhabitants. There are other people who dwell here. But Abraham, to your offspring, I will give the gate of his enemies. That's referencing the idea of overtaking your enemy to possess the land. That Abraham's inheritance and Abraham's generations that will follow him will indeed possess this land. And also you see at the beginning of verse 17, twice, I will bless you and multiply you. This idea of multiplication goes to the the aspect of the Abrahamic covenant uh, referring to seed, children, posterity. And how many will there be? He uses these pictures as he often does. As the stars in the night sky, as the sand in the seashore, and also the picture is often used in Genesis as well, the dust of the earth like the stars in the heavens, like the sand on the shore, like the dust on the earth, Abraham will be your offspring. He's reaffirming that promise and also this idea of the blessing. It comes twice at the beginning of verse 17. I will bless you, but also in verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So for all that Abraham has walked through and all that chapter 22 signifies in terms of his obedience and his faith, here you have God reaffirming this great promise of land, seed, and blessing. I will give to you all that I promise you, Abraham, and I will give to you immeasurably more. And the blessing that I promise to you will flow down from you into all nations. Now, this covenant promise is at the very heart of all that unfolds in the rest of the Bible in terms of God's plan of salvation. 
And that's why this is so important that God reaffirms this promise. But I want you to notice at the very, very beginning, as God is reaffirming this, it really comes in a very shocking way. Back in verse 15, it says that the angel of the Lord is calling to Abraham. And if you want to see it earlier, it's also in verse 11. Uh, It was the angel of the Lord who called out to Abraham to stay his hand when he had the knife in his hands. And it is again in verse 15, the angel of the Lord who calls out to Abraham to speak the word of God to him. And what is he speaking? Verse 16, all of these promises are reintroduced and reaffirmed at the beginning of verse 16 by God saying this, by myself, by myself, I have sworn this to you, Abraham. By myself, I have sworn to you the land, the seed, the blessing. And it is as if if Abraham needs to ask another time, Lord, how can I know? How can I know for sure that your word is true? And how can I know for sure that your promise is good? Here is God saying, I am swearing this to you, verse 16, by myself. Or another way of saying it is, by my own life. Back in chapter 15, do you remember that picture when the the flaming torch passed between the two pots and the animal carcasses and God was saying to you, to Abraham, Abraham, if I fail to fulfill my promise to you, May I die. God stakes his covenant promises upon his own existence, his own eternal existence. He is swearing. Or another way that children do this, not like the pinky promise, but even more elevated. Cross my heart, hope to die. God is saying to Abraham and to us, his people, that my promises to you are of such assurance and of such reality that the eternal, ever-existing God promises to cease to exist if he fails to fulfill his word to you, his child. There is no higher level of swearing than one can swear by God's own existence, and it is God himself who swears it. Now, Why does he do this? Why does God elevate his word to such a degree? And I think there are many things that we could say. But I want us to, if you don't mind, keep your finger here in Genesis and go back to the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 because the writer of Hebrews actually explains exactly what God means when he says, by myself I am swearing. So go to Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, it's on page 1004 if you've got a pew Bible there. But do turn to Hebrews chapter 6 because the writer of Hebrews provides the commentary about exactly what this means when God swears to Abraham by himself. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and beginning at verse 13, you see the heading over that text, the certainty of God's promise. Look at what the book of Hebrews says about God's promises to Abraham beginning Chapter 6, verse 13 in the book of Hebrews, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. In other words, who is God going to defer authority to when he swears an oath? 
other than himself. If he does it to anyone else or by anyone else's name, it would be a downgrade. So he swears by himself. Verse 14 saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to us as Christian believers is that when God makes a promise to you, when God says in His Word what is true, that promise is more of a reality than gravity. The assurance of God's Word is more assured than the reality that you will breathe one more time. God's Word is of such Assurance, and he seals his word to Abraham in such a way by saying, Upon my own life do I swear this promise to you. What does this say? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us as Christian believers living in the world today? Because I am so utterly fascinated that, that one of the greatest struggles that we all face when it comes to our faith is a struggle to have assurance. We believe... And we're holding on to that faith, but we constantly find it wavering. And, and we find moments when we're not sure. And we look in the mirror and we know ourselves and we begin to wonder, could God really be telling the truth when he says that my sins are forgiven? Because I know my sins and I even know the intent of my heart when I committed those sins. Surely God can't be true when he says to me, these things are forgiven. But here is the reality of covenant assurance that God wants his people to have this sense of assurance and it is rooted in this reality that the assurance that you need the assurance that you want the assurance that you long for any assurance that you and I are going to have is not going to be based on our faith your assurance is not built on the reality of your faith because sometimes your faith is strong and sometimes your faith is weak and we're up and we're down in this constant roller coaster. And wouldn't it be exhausting if God's promises were true only according to the measure of faith that we possess? That would be awful. But assurance is based not on your faith, but upon the absolute trustworthiness of God's word. What makes God's promise real and true for you is not the strength of your faith with which you receive that promise. What makes God's word real and true is the fact that God himself spoke it by his word, and that's what makes it true. God wants us to feel confidence and feel assurance in the face of his promises, which is why he goes to such lengths to say, it's true, and I'm going to reaffirm it again and again and again. And you know, I know this is the Old Testament, but it's just as much true in the New Testament era. 
Because do you know that's exactly what's happening every Lord's Day? God is saying to you by way of His covenant, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. You may have forgotten it. You may have had a rotten week. But it's still true. You're still loved. The Father has still given His Son for you. And regularly at the table we hear that covenant assurance, don't we? That regardless of how you have performed, the Father's love for you is not on a basis of performance. It's on the basis of His covenant. And isn't that good news? Now what's interesting here at the conclusion of this section is that if you count up the times that God speaks audibly to Abraham, if you go back to chapter 12 and go through this section, you would count not less than eight times that God speaks audibly to Abraham. Now that's remarkable. But this is the last one. And the last audible word that God gives to Abraham is this. Abraham, this is how true my word is. And we would hope that maybe Abraham had that ringing in his ears and sealed on his heart that God's word is true. Abraham, I swear by myself. Uh, loved ones, do we need much more than that to assure us? Than the Father coming to you, coming to me and saying, do you want to know the degree to which I love you? Do you want to know the degree to which my promises are true? I swear by my own son. And this is the means that God has given to assure our faith. And it's true for Abraham and it's true for us. Can you imagine a greater privilege? A greater confidence? We want to see that. Not only the reassurance of the promise, but then in verses 20 to 24, it might seem obscure. But I want us to see the intent behind the text in this little genealogical narrative here. I want us to see that Abraham embraces these promises. God gives these wonderful promises. And these few verses, I think, communicate to us something of the fact that Abraham does indeed embrace them, as he has throughout the narrative, and especially in 22. Abraham believes. Now, think of this reality. Abraham and Sarah are in their 100s. Maybe Sarah's in her late 90s. You know, you don't want to elevate a woman's age too much after all, right? Sarah's in her late 90s, and Abraham is in his 100s. And they have one son, Isaac. And we read in this text, verse 20, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, your brother, his wife has borne him eight children. Oh, and your brother's concubine, four more. Abraham, your brother has 12 children. And you only have one. Now, what do you make of that? 12 children to Nahor. And Abraham is supposed to be, what's his name mean? The father of many. Is it sarcasm? Is it an insult? What is behind all of this? Now, there's, a, there's, there's another detail in here in verse 23 where you find who Rebekah is, who's going to be Isaac's wife, of course. But here you have Nahor's 12 children and Abraham's one. Wouldn't it be better to have 12 than one? 
if you were called the father of many, and if you were promised the blessings of multitude, wouldn't it seem more of a reality if you had the twelve rather than the one? On the surface, it may appear that way, and by worldly evaluation, it may seem that way as well, that it's better to have twelve than one in terms of the culmination of a multiplied offspring, but not if that one child is the covenant child of promise. Not if that one child is the heir of all that God has promised to give Abraham in terms of all of his blessings. One is enough because for Abraham, God's promise is enough. Yes, his brother has 12, but the one son is the son of the covenant. And through this one child, God is going to unfold his plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation is going to culminate in one son of Abraham, generations later, who is also the son of God, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ that the Abrahamic promises are pointing towards the fulfillment and culmination of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to come and in verse 18, bless all nations. Because this one, this covenant promise, this child, this son, he is enough. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is is enough because God's salvation is enough. But if you're just evaluating by earthly and worldly eyes, you would say Nahor is more blessed than Abraham. And if you just evaluate the Lord Jesus Christ on worldly and earthly eyes, you're going to look upon him with scorn and not think much of him because the means of our salvation comes by suffering and death rather than triumphant victory and worldly acclaim. Externally, his salvation doesn't look like much. And externally, the sign of his salvation is all too common. Water, bread, and a cup. But in these realities, God has vested the fullness of his covenant grace so that we who receive them by faith receive the blessings of Abraham. This is the covenant that God has made, and just like Abraham, we are called to embrace it. The reason why he is called the father of the faithful is because he was faithful, and all who embrace it in his lineage are also called the children of Abraham. And that's you if you receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus. That's you if you trust in God's promise. That's you if you receive God's covenant. And that is a covenant in which you can be completely assured. So may he give us grace to be so assured. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace you communicate to us the strength of your word and the confidence that we might have in your promises. Uh, Lord, today we may be all over the map. We may be struggling. We may be discouraged and downtrodden. Or we may find ourselves confident wherever we are today, Lord. Would you, as you did to Abraham, speak and confirm your word to us that we might know ourselves, the children of God, forsaking our sins and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of your covenant promise, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington.com epc.org.
May God bless and keep you.